All right, John chapter 9, verse 1. Read along with me, if you would, please. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one may work, when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and he made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of a man, of the blind man, with the clay. And he said to them, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. You pray with me, please. It's such a rare thing, God, to get any place where we can breathe and hear it. We're so used to rhythms of street noise and people and conversations and phones ringing and texts and all the things that so conquer our just stillness. And we come today here in this room and we ask, God, if you to get into our hearts for you to open our eyes and to show us, God, what it is that you want us to personally hear you and corporately as a family what you wish for us to hear today. And God, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for the way that you know how to speak fluent us. Each one of us, regardless of where we've come from, whatever our native tongue is, whatever cultural and personal barriers we may find, you know how to hurdle them all, and we invite you to do so now. I pray for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me, you would immerse me, that you would be seen, not me, and that you would captivate us in your word that we here in this text would be so drawn to know you and understand you and your love and call in our lives too. So may your word burst open and just flourish before us now. Please have your way. I commit every second and pray you would redeem every second. May we have so much fun in your word as we learn but not just to be informed, but to be transformed. So do that work now, I pray. And I pray that every one of us will encounter you in your word now. If there be any who have yet to know you as their Lord and Savior, let this be the day of their salvation, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. You've got to have something as a checks and balances, or man will run amok, and that's never good. <clears throat> the setting we have here, ultimately, is a place called Nikbat Hashiluach, or if you will, the Pool of Siloam. It is, an, it's a, in essence, a trapezoidal pool with three sets of steps. Each set of steps is five steps at a point because, of course, there's this whole thing, of course, about importance of fives with the Torah in each book. What we read in our particular text here 
is Jesus is going to encounter a man and send him there. Now, it's important to note that all the way back in roughly 700 BC, the king, uh, his name is Hezekiah Hezekiah, uh, who is the king of the south and north, has been taken captive 22 years ago. Now, in the south, that particular king uh, has, has had, is now surrounded um, by uh, an, an army, by the way. At that time, it was Assyria, and they were quite unhappy. And, of course, they thought they could conquer anything. And they were really known for being horrible, horrible people in regards to uh, just the, the way that they would torture their prisoners and skin people alive and what they would do to pregnant women. It's just not worth repeating, but it was... Just, what, Rested to say, they were very feared because they were, in essence, ruthless. And you're probably aware of the fact that the two things that you really want in a city, first of all, is you want to be elevated. You want to be up on a hill because if you're up on a hill, then you have gravity to your favor. Because after all, then when someone comes at you, you can roll a hill or throw some oil or those kind of things that tend to be very favorable to stop people. It's deterrence to keep people from coming and charging your city. But there is a problem, too, because you need water to live. And traditionally, the higher up you go, the harder it is to find water unless you're going to go up into the rugged, beautiful Lapland Alps or whatever it would be. But traditionally, just so you know, it's a really hard thing to find. And Hezekiah does something brilliant. He takes this particular Gihon spring that's at the foot of this hill that we know as Mount Zion or we would say Jerusalem. And he has men digging from both sides. And they, in essence, kind of do this wandering thing back and forth with the idea that sooner or later it's likely that they're going to run into each other. Well, that was kind of the idea. And ultimately, what he does as a result of that is he runs water from a natural spring, the Gihon, into Jerusalem proper, straight down then from this place so that he's able to draw water so that when Jerusalem is besieged, they're going to be okay, as, at least as far as water is concerned. So he actually builds this pool, and it is this that God often uses, by the way, in reference to God's offering of provision, his miraculous provision, because it's strange to have such a thing near a city. And he tells us, by the way, in Isaiah 8, 6, for instance, roughly the same time that this is happening, for as much as the people have refused the waters of Shiloh, that go softly, but rejoice in Redzin and Remalia's son. They're saying, in other words, the people really take my provision that's right in front of them, and it's easy, and I've done this miraculously. They would rather go to Egypt and get their sort of safety and provision there. And God, of course, takes that very personally. Now, the reason I say that is this thing has existed then for over 700 years as Jesus is walking. And as it is the case, what we read in these first few verses, because ultimately my goal would be to develop what happens once God does something like that in your life next week? We read that Jesus had passed by. Now, I remind you, in chapter 8, Jesus was teaching in the temple. A woman is thrust before him, caught in the act of adultery. The Levitical law demands that not only the woman, but the man as well need to be brought before him. So this is, in essence, a trap. They're, in essence, trying to trap Jesus because they recognize Jesus is two things that seem irreconcilable to them. On one side, he is completely unbending to the word of God. But on the other side, he's completely compassionate to people. And they tended to be both sides, but never the tween meet is the idea. On one side, you have the people that were liberal and let's all hug people like Barney, but they would bend any scripture that they think is in any way a challenge to that. On the other side, there'd be people who are hard-nosed on the word of God, if you will, the law specifically, who then would kind of be like, a, there's an unmerciful element to the fact that it's like, if you just broke it, you broke it, you're done. And Jesus ultimately is going to show them that the two do reconcile at the light of the world. Jesus makes that clear. And he shows them, he says, look, it, if you want to throw a stone that makes perfect sense, as long as you're completely innocent, then you go right ahead. 
loose paraphrase, but again, don't just believe me. And what we read is those are the oldest to those that are the youngest will walk away and drop their stones. Now, they're going to need those stones later because they're going to want to throw them at Jesus by the end of the chapter. And then they start going after Jesus about his own self-witness. Now, understand, it is in this situation where there is a girl that should have been condemned for the law that stands before her accusers that have all now left her. And he stands with this girl and he says, has anyone condemned you? And she says, no. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. We'll go and sin no more. And there is, as we read in chapter one of John, that though the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus, both reconciled. Truth and mercy have kissed. Now, with that in mind, Jesus then, of course, is going to deal with the, with the religious leaders, but he turns to them at that moment and he says, I'm the light of the world. Please understand, this is one text or one statement he makes more than once. Now, understand the idea of it is that what the law does is it's never to be a single-edged sword. If you want to use it as a club to hit other people with it, I want to warn you. Well, let me say it this way. I used to teach martial arts when I was a lot younger. Now, today, it's a lot harder to even think about that for, for a lot of reasons. One of them is my own physical. Uh, well, let's just say I've matured. Anyways, with all of that said, and I remember one of the first things you teach when you teach self-defense is anything you carry with you can and will be used against you. That's one of the dangers. Well, understand, even within the body of Christ, we do the same thing with the word of God. We can take anything and we can use it and say, well, and understand... The idea isn't that we bend on scripture, that we just have to be willing to submit to it ourselves and recognize that every person in the eyes of the law needs the mercy of God. What the law does, according to the book of Galatians, is shows us that nobody's right before God on their own merit. There's nobody that's going to say, I'm a good person and it's good enough, and then take a look at the word and actually think that they still could be good enough. Because the whole point is, is that we cry out to a savior. And if we don't recognize we need one, we don't recognize that there's a saving needed. Well, then we'll kind of look at the whole thing like it's a joke. Now, for the woman that was caught in adultery, she needed a savior. And that was obvious. But for the people about to throw the stones, they had no concept that they were in need of saving until they recognized that the law would condemn them just as much. She can't use it on someone else and not have it come back at you. Now, here's a man where Jesus is going to go and validate that very message in a beautiful and glorious way. And I want you to recognize in verse 1 and in verse, verse 2 specifically that there is the term of disciples, and the disciples called him Ravi. Do you notice that here? Verse 1, it just says, as Jesus passed by, which tells us, by the way, that Jesus wasn't making a beeline for this man. And there is something I can learn from every verse, of course, but this is something. And, and this is why when we kind of share the word, you understand, there's nothing apart this that I can't look at myself and go, man, this needs to change. Jesus is passing by, which tells us that it wasn't like Jesus said, by the way, we're gonna, we have a kind of an appointment with a blind guy. What, what he's telling us here is, is that Jesus is on the way to something else, but in route to it, he sees this man and he's available for him just as much. And you probably are aware of that. If you've walked with the Lord for a period of time, some of the greatest ministry takes place in route to something else you think you're going to be doing to change the world. Here he's on his way and he passes and he sees this man born blind, blind from birth. Now what that tells us, he very well may not have any eyes at all. We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus is, is, becomes aware of it as he walks by. But notice in verse 2 that the group that's with him are calling themselves here disciples. Did you notice that? The term disciples, mathitikos, means simply students. 
Notice what they call him. Ravi. Ravi means teacher or master. In other words, this is a moment where school's in session. The students are there. They're calling on their teacher. And they're asking the teacher a legitimate question. What we're finding in this chapter, by the way, is the fruit of the scribes. Those that were the teachers of the law had had taught some very specific things that this man has clung to. And by the end of the chapter, we're going to see that it's going to be brought to light a lot of other things as well. One of the things they seem to have taught is that any form of physical problem was clearly the result of someone's sin. In other words, you can clearly point the finger at someone for your thing. By the way, you're probably aware that that happens today. The only difference is today we ever, we never point at ourselves. Now there are times, let's face it, you want to be like, you're kind of playing and you jump in front of a bus and you get hit by that bus. You want to blame the bus driver, but if you're playing in the street in the first place, there's got to be a part of, of blame that's partly yours, if not entirely so. But we would rather blame it on someone else so we don't have to take responsibility and now we're just a victim. But in those days, the idea was you can blame it on sin. It's just an issue of what sin you want to hang it on. Now, what we're going to find, by the way, is that this guy, there's a lot to be learned about this particular guy. And I do really like the kind of the situation that's here is the students have been taught this. And it's the same issue we're going to deal with, too. Why in the world does this baby seem to be suffering? This doesn't seem to be right. Now, what the religious leaders that were actually teaching at that particular point was that there was some sin that either was intended by the baby beforehand, that now they're kind of paying in advance, or that the parents had done something horrible, and as a result of it, it was enough to toss it onto the next generation. And if you don't think that that happens in the Christian church, that mindset, well, let me ask you, have any of you heard of a thing called a generational curse? There are people that genuinely believe, well, look, if my dad was a witch or, my, or a warlock or my mom was this or my grandfather was this, well, then I'm doomed But let me tell you what scripture says, because it's important to recognize that. What it tells us in scripture, and by the way, if you're the kind that can actually get there in your your Bibles, well, get there with me. Go to the book of Ezekiel for a moment. The book of Ezekiel should be relatively easy to to find, because if you close your Bible, open it up in the middle, chances are you're in the book of Psalms. Once you go to the right, the next big book is going to be Isaiah. The next big book after that, you're going to find Jeremiah, and you're going to find Ezekiel in between them. In Ezekiel chapter 18. In Ezekiel 18, verse 20. I love that you're looking, by the way. says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteous of the righteousness shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Notice it's both ways. That swings on both sides. On one side, we have the idea that a guy did something horrible and his son doesn't have to pay for it. That should be very comforting. And what a great thing to know that for all the horrible things your father or mother have done or whatever the case, you don't have to pay that. Now, on the other side of it, let me warn you, there's another challenge on it. And that is, well, what if your mom or dad was really awesome? They were great before God, and it just seemed like when they knelt, heaven stopped and the angels sang. And you're like, wow, that's great. I'd love to cash in on that. And what God says is, that man's righteousness is imposed upon him, but you're going to be responsible for your own. And there is the challenge on that side too. 
On one side of it, the great news is, is you don't have to worry about God doing that if you come to Christ. It tells us for what it's worth in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. That person gets laid to rest. Now, that doesn't mean you haven't learned bad habits. If your dad was an alcoholic or your mom was an alcoholic, and every time they had a really rough moment, they went to the bottle, it's fairly likely you've learned to do that too when challenges hit you. But that can be reprogrammed. That's the beauty of being transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Romans 12 tells us. Now, if I didn't believe these verses, I would never have gotten married and I would never have had children. And I wouldn't be here telling you this now either. Well, where do people get this generational curse mindset from? Well, I'll go to one other place. The fifth book of the Bible is the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, and go with me, if you will. Deuteronomy, just so Deuteronomy chapter 5. God in Deuteronomy 5 is reiterating the Ten Commandments. And he tells us this in Deuteronomy 5, verse 9. Speaking, by the way, of making idols and false gods. And he says, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, upon the children of the third and fourth generation, and you go, ah, there it is. But look at the rest of the verse. Of those that hate me, but showing mercy to thousands. Nobody ever quotes that part. To those who love me and keep my commandments. And what God is saying here is it's a comparative contrast. On one side of it, he's saying, look it, if you want to hate me like your dad did, you just might find a lot of those things happening upon you as well. But the moment you start to love me, that's done. But what he says is, it may be three or four generations on something like this, but there are thousands who could get the blessing of a person who's faithful. He's not just going to look at what I'm going to do is I just want to curse the next, you know, I'm going to curse your kids. What he's telling you is the buck can stop the moment you turn to the Lord. But he says, it may hit a generation or two if they want to continue to hate me, but I want to let you know this. Thousands of people can be affected if you're just willing to love me. Now, it's weird. We don't see the comparison unless we're willing to look at the whole verse in two. Because what he tells us is, yeah, there is going to be a ripple for your evil. That is horrible, and people are going to be affected by it. But, and you want to love me? And there are so many people that will be affected. You may never see. Now, look at, my mom was into the occult. I took a crystal ball with me to, to university when I was a kid. <laughs> it's scary to say university when I was a kid. That was a scary statement. It tells you how old I am now. I remember them having seances in my house. Casting up. We had a, an album back in those days. You guys remember those things where they're like a CD, which is also now, you know, antiquitish. But it was gigantic and you put it on. And Anyways. On this thing was by Vincent Price on how to cast the devil into your bedroom. Now, who in the world would want to do that anyways? Anyways, but for what it's worth. And it's like, that was what I was raised around. My mom just didn't want to die. She was dying of cancer since the day that I knew her. And she was struggling. She just didn't want to die. And she would have tapped into anything she could to not do so. Man, that's done. We were raised around a house that was full of craziness. And yet, that's done. I was raised in a violent household, and I was a violent person, a horribly violent person. That's done. And the reason I say that is, is that when they're looking and they're building on this concept, 
they took a doctrine that someone was giving them and they're doing what any student would do. They're trying to apply it to the situations around them. Now, imagine if we did that as we would as a student. We take this idea and then we start looking around and we start going, well, if that be the case, then how does that apply to a guy that's born blind? We look at him and so they ask, Ravi, this guy's clearly blind, which tells us it's more than the guy is kind of, I, I tend to feel like his features would be ones that would be clearly the case. Because otherwise I think they could start to be a little cautious. Nobody's questioned that. By the way, he tends to be, by the way, we're going to learn this guy's a little bit famous in the sense that there are a lot of people who seem to know him. And it's interesting because a lot of people walk by him and they're going to go, wait a minute, weren't you? Isn't that the guy? And yet the only people who don't recognize him are the religious leaders. I think that's interesting. They actually have to ask. Here. Who's, teacher, I'm having a real hard time with this one. I mean, if God's so good, why this? Jesus answers in verse 3, neither. This man's blindness was not the result of his own sin. It was not the result of his parents' sin. This is why he's this way. He's this way because the works of God are to be revealed in him. That is a really, really hard thing to swallow. In other words, wait a minute. What you're saying is it's actually a blessing for this guy to be blind? It's actually a cool thing for this moment for this guy to be blind? I don't think he's going to agree with you at the moment. The word reveal, fenerajo. Fenerajo means to manifest, to become clear and obvious. That's the word here when he says that it should be revealed. Now note what Jesus is saying. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> that they're looking at a person in as far as... Now, I want to remind you, this is 2,000 years before we have all of the things that make accommodations for a person that may have some form of, dare I say the word, handicap. Special needs is a kinder way, apparently, to say it. But the idea of it is today, of course, we make all kinds of accommodations. Now, I, I don't know about you, but some of them kind of make me a little bit concerned. There are certain places, for instance, I get this. I love the idea of beeping on both sides of a street so you can cross. I think that that's fair. But I've actually seen things at ATMs where it's all in Braille. That's a little concerning because, well, anyways. And it's even more so when you actually have things at drive throughs in America, there are places where you have drive-thrus, where you pull your car around, and there's actually Braille. Now, I'm thinking, who in the world is driving that needs Braille? That alone, that's concerning to me. But 2,000 years ago, what would it be like to not be able to see? What disadvantages would a person have then that we wouldn't have necessarily today? And as far as the world is concerned, it's even worse than that 2,000 years ago in this country where we're at, where Jesus is walking. Because it's more than just that the person has something that limits them for the moment. It's that everybody thinks that somewhere down the line, you earned it. And that's entirely different altogether. So it's more than just a person looking and going, wow, that person has a need but it's looking and thinking, oh, that person did something to deserve it. And Jesus does something strange in chapters 8 and 9. He took two people that everyone would look at with abject condemnation. 
And he turned them into people that we turn on ourselves and go, now how much of this is me? Jesus says something strange. And I realized something in this. Well, follow me on this. Tell me if this makes sense. Somewhere down the line, we become uh, somewhere between 11 and 14. It all depends, unless you're horribly self-aware prior. You come to this point where you start to emerge out of your social eggshell. And you start to ask, who in the world am I to the rest of the world? How do I connect with the rest of the world? How are they going to see me? Now, maybe before that, I don't know your particular situation, but traditionally, the idea, I think, before that is just how do I keep mom and dad happy, and then as we get older, how do I keep them from grounding me? But somewhere in the beginning of all that, you just kind of look, and you're kind of, somewhere it's kind of you emerge, it's like you came out of some form of coma, and you're kind of looking and going, now, is that what I want to be, or is that what I, if I don't want to be that, well, then what do I want to be? And you start looking around, and you start, for the first time, vetting options of how you want to kind of conduct yourself and who you would rather be more like. Somewhere down that time, we are in this horrible place of the end of primary school and the beginning of secondary school. What a horrible time. And God, just to have more fun with it, adds hormones just so that you don't even know what in the world's going on now. Now your face starts breaking out and your body starts changing. You're trying to figure out who you are and you don't even know who you are because you're not the same person you were yesterday. Just to make it worse. And in the classes, you start getting this crazy thing. Like for me, I loved phys ed class. I mean, my dad was an athlete, and I kind of loved it. And it's like, you realize, and a lot of that, what you do is, it's a place where you test a bunch of sports until you find out which one you're kind of better at. And that's the thing you, and and that's kind of what a lot of school is, is you're kind of dipping your spoon in a lot of different stews until you find the one that you kind of go, hey, I do that pretty good, I guess. I mean, okay, that one I don't do well at all. This one I do better than than that one. And you're somewhere down the line, and you kind of build your personality around the things that you don't do so bad. It doesn't make any sense. So then all of a sudden, by secondary school, or we might say high school in America, we get to this point where we start developing a personality around our strengths. Now you're the academic. Now you're the geek. Strangely enough, back in my day, back in my day, that was an insult. Now I think it's a compliment in some ways. Uh, You know, in, in this place, you're the athlete. In this place, you're the artist or whatever. But somewhere down the line, you start. And you know what? Everything starts to change because you develop your clothing around that now. And the gait of your walk goes around that now. And you start watching other people that you think are good at that particular thing. And you start going, I found me. Oh, I found me. And that's the way the world works. Because let's face it, in the end of it all, we don't want people to point and laugh. We don't want people to look and go, what a loser you are. So what we want is we want people to kind of look and go, well, you have a reason for being alive. And as far as I'm concerned, you're contributing to the general populace of the world. You're not surplus. Hey, so good. You could be on the team and, oh, you know, and who doesn't love that? You watch a bunch of guys, pardon me for just putting as bluntly as I can, run around a field for 90 minutes kicking as hard as they can and putting themselves in position. The strange part is when a guy actually kicks it in, and I've watched this as of recent, how many times they turn to their own teammates to see how they're going to respond. And it's like, and their arms go out, and it's like this really weird romantic, bromantic thing where it's like, oh, yeah, great, you know, and they jump on top of each other and they pile and they're like, yes, for this moment, it, this, this whole thing was worth it. And the only reason I say that is it's like it's built within us, this want to belong. And it's like if I could find the one thing that will help you like me, then this is it right here. This is it. 
We build our life on that. So what happens when this thing is frail? You're an athlete and then someone tags your, your knee and now all of a sudden things change. You were the model, but then you were in the car accident or an acid attack or sad to say you just got old. Now what happens? You fight it. In some cases, maybe you try to come up with a second backup plan. You know, okay, well, I was an athlete, but maybe I wasn't really that bad at this. I could try to do this too. But in the end of it all, we're still trying to find the things that make us marketable. But the things that are on the other side of the scale, those are the things we would lock in a closet and never visit again. Whatever that is. We're not that bright. Don't put me in an academic setting. We're not that athletic. Well, please don't make me play any sports. We're not that social. Please, could I just be on my computer until I die? And we just avoid them. And we learn how to get people to like us by the things that we sell. I used to say that's putting all your trophies in the front, if that makes sense. So I find out what you're about. And then I kind of go and say, well, here are the things that might make you like me in that field. This is kind of what you're, this is the stuff that's your strong points. Well, here's a couple things that might fit into that. Like me, like me, please. But if that's the case, then what happens is somewhere we only want our relationships to go so deep. Because I only have a certain amount of trophies to put up. And then after that, you're going to have to find the person that's actually not that strong and not that gifted and not that, not that accelerated and not that confident, therefore. And, and it's like, you know... I, it's like, as long as you stay in the front room, we're going to be okay. But the moment you start digging, man, we're in trouble. And we freak out. And then I tell you that God actually knows everything about you. Does it freak you out when you get there? See, what God did is he didn't go, and, he didn't do, go window shopping when he looked at you. He actually went to the core and he checked the foundation and said, this is messed up. But he didn't run. He didn't go, oh, I guess we could probably fix this. He looked at the stuff you won't visit. And he says, I paid for that. And I can wash that. And I can drive that away. And we can genuinely bury it for good and start over. And now all of a sudden, there's this weird thing because it's like we're born with this desire to be loved and now we are so loved. <clears throat> we are, our desire genuinely changes if we're going to be honest. Where if we really realize the truth that he loves us like that and we change from actually wanting to be loved to wanting to love. And that's a strange place. Before that, we would gladly love as long as it gets us the end, which is to be loved. We're still using whatever we need as a tool to get loved. Now it's different. Now it's like, I just, I just want to care for you, to be honest, because I just want to care for you. I don't, even, I don't even get it in my own head, but that's the way it works. And the reason I say that is all of a sudden, God says, I want to use you, but you're going to have to look different than the world. And you're like, well, of course. Can I just be superhuman? Can I just be like, in essence, a spiritual avenger? And we'll pick which one we want to be. You know, 
It's like, I kind of dug this one. And can I, can, can, do you think I could do it with a Christian? Like I could use my Bible instead of a hammer. That'd be really cool. Can we fall, call fire down from this thing? Just be, yeah. I mean, think of the things, what it would be like. But in the end of it all, we're still going with the old template and trying to add now the Christian thing into the old template. And you know what God says? He goes, this is what I want to do. You ready for this? I want to use the stuff in your closet. And you're like, <laughs> no, not into that. That's humiliating and humbling. And I'm weak there. I don't even like me there. Why would anyone else? And God's going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not talking about getting people to like you. See, when something happens to you and the rest of the world thinks you should just lay down and die, they watch really closely. Have you noticed that? They watch really closely. They're like, well, this would have taken me down. Ironically, God actually shows his greatest power in those moments when we are so weak that we can't even hide the fact that we're weak anymore. What Jesus says is, actually, I had a plan for this guy. Before the foundation of the world, I says, I'm going to have a guy here. Now, in this case, he's going to heal him. But you've already read the text, so it isn't like I'm giving you a spoiler. But he was set up for this. Now, it tells us, by the way, in Second Chronicles, that the eyes of the Lord span the earth seeking to show himself strong to those whose hearts are, are truly his, loyal to him. And he really does want to show himself strong. And for some, that may be an outright healing, but not for everyone. There is a man born without arms, born without legs, that was discarded by so many. But he wasn't. Discarded by the one who matters most. Talk about special needs. And yet this man travels the world now, sharing Jesus with people. And let me show you what he looks like a bit. This is him. I think, by the way, the rough part about it is, can anyone actually say this guy's name? I mean, I think some of you are from different countries. Vojcic. That's kind of how it works. Vojcic. Nick Vojcic, by the way, is a man who... <clears throat> he's married a beautiful woman. He has a child. Beautiful son. But he travels the world telling him that he is so thankful he is the way that he is. So thankful he is the way that he is. I have a couple particular quotes by him. Obviously, one of my favorites is the one that's up there. If you can't get a miracle, become one. He says this, by the way. The challenges in our life are there to strengthen our convictions. They're not there to run us over. I think that's a pretty awesome quote as far as I'm concerned. Especially for a guy who, if we're going to just be honest, would be more likely to take to let that situation overcome him than anything we've ever faced. My other favorite quote by him is, God's love is so real that he created you to prove it. Now, <laughs> here's the point about this guy. That this man here may do more 
for the kingdom of God than all of us in this room combined. Because the moment that man starts to speak, lots of people listen. Lots and lots of people. Who said, I'd I'd have thrown in the towel a long time ago. I would have totally said this is over. But he didn't. You're probably familiar with Helen Keller, another person that was born without the ability to see and I believe the ability to hear. Is that right? Or at least, let me say, I don't know about born, but she was basically in a place where she became so. And it was her that said, although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of overcoming it. Another person who, by the way, had to put her trust in the living God. And here's the thing in it, is that maybe you're never going to be in this situation. I mean, I think there's a part of us naturally would pray that nothing like that could come upon you. The question is, if it, ha- if it does happen or whatever the case is, whatever the circumstance that for the moment limits you or throws you to the mat, what are you going to do with it? What if you heard the words of Jesus at that moment? Well, this isn't really about sin. This is actually about saving people. This isn't about pity. See, my problems become God's platforms if I'm willing willing to hand them to him. And my struggles become God's stage if I'm willing to hand them to him. And I realize that the same things that we would hide because in the world that's the way we do it are the same things that God would say, if you give those to me, I may just, we may just set them gone, we may let them be gone forever, or it may just be that it'll be a moment where somebody else in the world is contemplating suicide right now, but they need your voice because it's your voice that speaks into that situation in a way that no one else possibly could. But you have to be humble enough to be willing to share that. But that's not exactly the way we've been taught. And unfortunately, that's not the way it's been taught by the religious leaders. And there is, and I'll say in kindness, that it is very well-meaning that there's a part of the body of Christ that teaches that if you're, if you're ill, it's clearly sin still. And if you're poor, you're clearly, it's clearly sin And if you're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, then clearly it's an issue of your own personal sin. And it just sounds like Job's advisors to me. And yet, if that were the case, Jesus and Paul were in pretty rough spaces because neither one of them actually uh, had this completely cush, easy life without the challenges of those things. And I realize the reason for that is Jesus shows us that when the house is built on the rock, it doesn't keep the rain away. It doesn't keep the storms or the wind from blowing, and it doesn't keep the floods from rising. That's not the point. The point is it keeps the house from falling. And to be honest, no one's looking until the storm hits. I hear the words of the enemy as God is speaking to Satan, one of the few conversations God's ever willing to have with him in the beginning of the book of Job, when he says, have you considered him? I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that thinks, man, if you're in a conversation with Satan, you don't have to bring my name up. It's okay. You know, and in this situation, and Satan's response is, well, of course he praises you. Look at how you've blessed him. Take all that away, and he'll curse you to your face. Let me say that again. The enemy's response, of course he praises you. Look at all you've given him. Take that away. He'll curse you to your face. God's like, all right, you're on. And then we read in First John that the world's under the sway of the wicked one. I mean, the world is genuinely under his, if you will, they're driving life under the influence. 
And I think that that's the mindset of most. I'll take that away. Take away his health. Let's see where he's at then. Take away his vigor. Let's see where he's at that. Take away all those great resources or that the way that he's constantly be affirmed or take away the way that she's so popular and look at, of course, she praises you. Look at how you've blessed her. I think it's ironic because in my opinion, I think it's easier to actually turn from God into great blessings. Now we get that just to not, you know. Is anyone allergic? Okay, well, I'm moving on because I'm going to close this. Atta girl. Send it to Daniel. Thank you. We've had a situation once where we were at church and a Doberman walks in. Big old Doberman. And it gets even better. And as the Doberman come walks in, is in the middle of the aisle, begins to pee right in the aisle. There is just no way to recover from that. <clears throat> And Jesus says, look, as long as I'm in the world, I'm going to be the light of it. The last time Jesus said that, he showed that the, that the law showed us that we all need mercy. By the time Jesus is done with this chapter, what we'll see is we all need to be able to see that only Jesus can give us. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. So verse 6. Now, let me close this, but I want you to get this. Awesome. So play this out with me for a moment. <clears throat> See, you know, nobody's falling asleep in church today, that's for sure. So. That was yet? See, look at that. Yeah, I can hang up by my guitar. Okay. There's a man blind. Now, he's apparently quite familiar with the religious leaders because he's going to quote them later on. We'll get there next week. But get this. So, guys... Do this. Close your eyes for a minute. Just close your eyes. You hear a a crowd coming by. Now, you're living off of the kindness of others, right? If you're living off the kindness of others, what that means is that when you hear a crowd, this is a fairly decent moment for you. Now, there's a religious leader. We hear Rabbi, Ravi. And what that means is at this moment, this is a really good thing. Because what this means is there's a religious teacher. And that's the people that are most likely. You know that because when the people are out there they, that are asking for money, they have a Bible or a giant cross around their neck because they think it's going to get them more money. That tells you something. So your eyes are closed. And as your eyes are closed, you hear somebody ask the question that's probably gone through your head a few times, which is who sinned? Who did this? Who who do we blame for this? And at that point, I would imagine my ears would be completely tuned into that conversation. How about you? And Jesus says something I don't think this guy has ever heard before in his life. And that is, well, actually, no one. This is not to blame man. But instead, this is going to be an opportunity to do something amazing. And at that point, imagine your eyes are closed. And I know that's really hard because there's this flying thing in here. But imagine, if you will, all of a sudden at this moment. Now, remember, you're, you're blind. You hear God go. <laughs> okay, that's a little weird. But then all of a sudden there's this. Right now, who wants that experience? 
Who wants that experience at this moment? Now, I remind you, Jesus is like, this is actually a setup. This isn't a setback. This is a setup. And you're, you, don't, I mean, you can't see anything at this moment. And you hear Jesus spit. It's the Sabbath, by the way. To this day, do you know it's illegal to spit on the Sabbath? Are you aware of that? Jewish law forbids that for two reasons. One is that spitting actually requires, don't miss this, actually requires that it may land on dirt. And if it lands on dirt, it's farming. It's irrigation. And that's work. But Jesus does more than that. Then he scrapes that up and he forms it. Now that's more work. Now, in a case of a Sabbath, a Shabbat law, that if a person was actually at the point of death, you could stop the bleeding, but you couldn't cure it. You couldn't apply any form of antibacteria. The antibacterial. The only thing you do is basically keep them until it's like, sorry, buddy, we really can't heal you today, but we can at least stop you from dying until the next day. Then on the next day, we can actually try to take care of the gangrene. That was the law. So here is Jesus, and your eyes are closed, and Jesus goes, oh, look at actually, this is for God to do. This is for God to be glorified. And look at I need to do what God's told me. I need to do what the Father's told me. I must work the works of him who sent me to this day. And so there's a time coming when it really isn't going to happen. Now is the time. And so here we go. Let's do something amazing, guys. You can see Jesus turning to his disciples, his students, and going, hey, boys, get this. You ready? Okay, here's a moment. You asked a question. Well, let's just live it out. You want to see the glory of God? Check this out. And then you feel on your eyes. But at that point, Jesus doesn't just, I mean, he could have just formed eyeballs, stuck them in there. Open up your eyelids, buddy. But he doesn't. Because what he does instead is he says, now go wash. Now, I'd like you to think this through for a moment. He's telling a blind guy to go to a pool. But don't miss this. That means he's got to incorporate his disciples, doesn't he? He has to use his students. Boys, get him there. So there you are. Bruno gets up. Hugo gets up. Jaden gets up and he says, come on, buddy, let's get you there. Now, the pool is something, and I remind you, it's trapezoidal. But get the idea. That means the guy's got to get down on his knees. And imagine he's got guys around him to help him. And he has to go like this, and he has to lap the water over his eyes. Now, if that's the case, what's the first thing he sees? Himself. And imagine Jesus going, you heard me. This is to glorify God. As if he were to look and go, see that guy? That's the guy I'm sending next. And as he rinses off his face and he rinses and he looks and he can see his own reflection for the first time, you realize this guy's born blind. He's never seen it. Now, it's more than just seeing for the first time. Your whole brain has a catalog. I don't know if you're aware of that. A library of all of the different things you see. Barking dog, run away from that. Okay, that's a nice thing. That's a friend with a hug, you know, looking like they're nice. Okay, you, we, we have catalogs of all of this, the data that we see. And all of that has to be placed in his head as he sees for the first time. And as he sees for the first time, he sees this face and it's like his brain has to, to wrap his head around this, that that's him now. And you go, no, I've never for my whole life seen this. This is a seeing me. And Jesus says, look at this whole thing is so that the world would see my glory. I've got work to do here. Now, consider this, and we go to prayer.
that this man, the first thing he recognizes in this, he's going to be born blind, we know that. He's older, we know that, because people are going to say it, his parents are going to say, well, you know, and he's well-known, because they'll say, isn't this the guy? And yet in all of this, when you actually give your life to Christ, I think one of the first things the Lord wants to do is show you the new you. A you you've never seen before, because you're actually a different person now. The you that you are now will never be the same. This man will never be blind again. I wonder what it'd be like if this guy lives to 90 and other guys are there trying to, you know, at this point trying to get, you know, trifocals and that kind of thing. The guy's like, I'll read it for you. You know, I mean, imagine what it would be like for him. When Jesus heals countless people in Matthew 4 that his disciples bring, the powerless, the possessed, the paralyzed. And they look and they go, well, who in the world am I now? Eight times Jesus will answer it at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You're blessed. Look in that reflection. The place where we celebrate God's miraculous provision of life. And see, you're blessed now. I mean, what are you? If you've said yes to Jesus, what are you now? Are you just an ex-addict? An ex put your vice there? I mean, if that's the case, you haven't actually looked in the pool. Believers, your whole life starts by looking in the pool and realizing, I am not the person that, that I was just moments ago, and I'll never be that person again. You could try to run back to it. The guy could wear dark sunglasses and put out a cane and put out a cup. But he knows he's not blind anymore. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Translated sent. Why sent? Because that's what God's going to do now. I'm going to send you. He went and he washed and he came back seeing. Now let me ask you as we go to prayer. Have you said yes to the gift of Jesus? His death on the cross on your behalf. His resurrection the third day. Because I remind you, it wasn't just the death at the cross. The death at the cross says goodbye to the old man. But the resurrection says hello to the new Have you agreed to both sides of that? Or is it just, yeah, Jesus, I don't want to go to hell. Glad you paid for it at the cross. Well, what about the part where Jesus rose again to give you new life? What are you going to do with that? If you haven't, I want to give you that choice as we pray now. If you have, my suggestion today is look in the pool. Look in the pool of God's beautiful, miraculous provision and see yourself as something new now person that you, you've never had to be before. You'll never have to be again. And a person you've never been before. And let God use you now. And don't be afraid of whatever that weakness is. Don't be afraid of that thing because you're loved regardless. And as the Lord starts to say, hey, so you're not that good at that. Aren't they refreshing? Do you know someone like that? Someone that actually has turned their own awkwardnesses to something beautiful. We know a few people like that. They're my favorites. They've learned to laugh. They've learned to enjoy and go, you know what? I'm okay with my own skin. But they all know the Lord. And somewhere in it, it's like, I just don't have to impress you anymore. I could just enjoy you. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, that you came to clear up 
these horrible misnomers. And this poor man had no idea for however many years he had lived, and he'd lived a long time up to this point, at least he's of legal age. Never seeing a sunset or the smile of a friend, but listening. And it always starts with listening. And hearing somebody ask the question that I'm sure he's asked himself on many occasions. And to hear an answer that I'm sure he's never heard before. Because it makes no sense to us if our minds are in the world that you would actually use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the things that are despised and base and that are not. And then we have these treasures and jars of clay, of earthen vessels, that the glory would be of you, not of us. But that we wouldn't glory in those things that we think are our greater strengths, the rich and their riches, the strong and their strength, the wise and their wisdom. But that him who glory, let him glory in this, that he understands and knows you. That you are God, exercising loving kindness and mercy and righteousness. Because in these things you delight. And though the world is looking for a strong man, they don't even recognize what that strength looks like. And they see it when we're willing to be weak and trust you. And I just pray for every believer here that you get us to the pool and look in the pool and recognize we are not the person we used to be and we'll never be that again. And in that same way, if there be any in this room who have yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus and are willing to let that old person pass in exchange for the new person you want to make us, pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I stand before you guilty of my own problems, of my own choices. And your word makes clear I can't stand on my own merit, but you've not asked me to. I believe you sent Jesus to die on the cross so that all of that could be paid. So I could stand before you innocent in that gift. And then he died and was buried as you promised. And also as your scripture promised, he rose again on the third day to offer me a new life. And I gladly exchange the old for the new. Make me new now, God, please. I hand myself to you and say, please, make me your project now. And set me aside for your glory. And may I finally rest. May I finally rest. And who I am in you. Show me the new me. And let me glory in you in it. Glorify yourself through me in it, I pray. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.